0: This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society, and we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going.
1: We are here in the Romanian Parliament building here in Bucharest and it's the International Crisis Summit, or known for its International Covid Summit, number four here in the Romanian Parliament. A couple of months ago, it was in Brussels. Uh, So this is the fourth one they have had and they've brought together a phenomenal range of speakers. We'll be covering this throughout the day, talking to a number of the speakers and it's a It's an amazing building. I lived across the border in Bulgaria for a number of years. And this is, I understand, the second largest building in the world after the Pentagon. And it's the heaviest building in the world. Um, Nicola Ceausescu wanted to build a palace and that's what he has built. So it is a huge building. You'll see some of the pictures uh, earlier on from when we walk in and it's going to be opened by a number of the Romanian MPs and MEPs. Uh, The first keynote speaker is Dr. Robert Malone that I know is part of the War Room Posse. He will be speaking, introducing the delegates uh, to this two day event and then we go off with a range of other speakers It's going to be a great day, uh, and I'm so excited that you there, the Warren Posse, can be part of this and see what's happening here in Europe with many of the big American speakers. Pierre Corey, Dr. Pierre Corey is here, and Brett Weinstein is here. Robert and Jill Malone are here. There are so many speakers, about 60 speakers, over the two days. And they'll be highlighting government failures across Europe and across the world in pushing the COVID tyranny, uh, which we have all seen. And the follow-on from that, uh, COVID into uh, a crisis of belief, a crisis of surveillance, a crisis of control, all across our lives are being controlled. And just because supposedly COVID has gone away, those methods that were used by governments all over the world to hold us in place are still being used and are ready to be enacted to step up at a moment's notice. So enjoy the day and enjoy the speakers. Dr. Robert Malone. Uh Yesterday, you opened up uh, the Parliament Session, Parliament session, the International Crisis Summit here in the Romanian Parliament, and today, you, I think you're the only person in the programme twice, but anyway.
2: Yeah, I was asked to bracket it, uh, just like I have in the past. I, I'm, I'm one of the folks that uh, works really actively to support the two main organisers. And they've come to rely on me over time uh, to summarise things and, and tee it up. So I'm grateful for that honour.
1: Well, you're going to close today. Maybe you want to uh, touch on that. So just give one or two points you're going to make. It's, it's a positive end. A lot of this can be quite negative, what we're facing. Um, and you're ending on something looking forward to a positive future. Do you want me just pull one or two bits out of that for
2: the viewers? Well, uh, I kind of feel like uh, Dr. Matthias Desmet just spoke a moment ago and he stole my punchlines, lines, uh, which, which actually has been fascinating. What, what I've seen all the way through is that we've all been reinforcing each other. There's a mm-hmm. convergence of thought here mm-hmm. in terms of the observations of what's transpired, the role of the World Health Organization, the w- role of the World Economic Forum, uh, the corruption uh, within the whole UN matrix. Meryl Nass is speaking about the international health regulations and the pandemic treaty right now. There's just a remarkable parallelism. And Matthias, as I said, kind of just stole my thunder because the, the truth is that in many ways, we're starting to win. I think we've turned this. I think we've turned the tide a bit. And Matthias's point, and also my point, is that we can all contribute to overcoming this wave of totalitarianism that has swept over the whole world by sincerely speaking out, by sharing our truths, by committing ourselves to truth and speaking the truth at every level. You don't have to... You know, I, I'm privileged to be able to speak to you, to be on Steve's show, etc., cetera, uh, and participate in these conferences. But it's just as important for people to talk to each other over their kitchen table, uh, in the grocery line, uh, with with other colleagues. And remember, it's I've taken a lot of hits. Mm-hmm. You've taken hits, we've all taken a lot of hits on this, and it's time for everybody to have a little bit of courage. If I can survive the character assassination, so can everybody else. And it's time to kind of put on your big boy pants or cowboy up and start speaking truth to the people around you. You don't have to be aggressive about it, be open-hearted, be empathetic about it. These people have been lost in a hypnosis. That was another one of the key points that was made by some of the speakers here, is that truly, the use of media, in particular television, has been had a hypnotic effect on people. And that together with these repetitive propaganda messages has resulted in a situation in which the truth has been sacrificed. And we can all help the whole world to recover and get out of this horrible mess. If we are committed to truth, speaking truth, and uh, forming community and bonds with each other. Uh, that's, that's what enabled this. And uh, one of the uh, earlier presentations really hit the nail on the head. There has been, and Matthias again reinforced it, there's been a 200-plus year history of the rise of elites and the weaponization of propaganda as a tool for control that's been in parallel complemented by the increasing isolation of individuals and the sense of loneliness and separation. Those two feed off of each other. The one makes the other more powerful. The propaganda is more powerful because we have become more socially isolated and separated from each other. So again, it comes back to the good old three things that I keep saying. Uh, Commit yourself to integrity and truth speech Uh, commit yourself to respect of your fellow human being and their dignity and commit yourself to building community. And I still think that's the way forward. That's how we get out of this. And I'm, I'm encouraged by what I'm hearing from so many that there is a sense that we are starting to break through and get towards that better future that, uh, I keep hoping, is out there, but it keeps slipping off into the distance. And and I think that this all comes down to, in the United States, to the next election mm. and what transpires there. And uh, that's, that's a story that's yet to be written. And, and uh, the War Room Posse is going to play a key role in writing it. I'd love to pick you up on that,
1: but I want to just make one point about the conference and let you pick up. Uh, I think you've also been involved in in them. Uh, The last one, I think, had 4 billion views or something. There's a hunger for the
2: information. There is. Yeah, so the last one you're talking about is where we testified in uh, the European Parliament. And uh, strange stories have come out that many European parliamentarians weren't even aware that that was happening. They've seen it on the videos. Mm -hmm. There has been a huge... uh, press from media seeking verification that it actually even happened, that Mm -hmm. these videos were real. They're not um, some synthetic uh, artifact that's been created. And what it does when we hold these things, each time we break through to a slightly larger population, and what that does is it creates pressure, particularly on other politicians. Right now, I think we can all say that most politicians uh, don't aren't there. They're not real big on courage. Mm. And uh, by speaking out by presenting these data and and I got to say this one has been incredible. Mm. The stuff that I've seen the, the the depth of some of the science that's been shown here. The uh, findings are stunning. I look forward to sharing those in greater detail with with, uh, the War Room and with our Substack. But uh, each time we build a little more momentum, a little more support, a little more willingness on the part of alternative media and politicians who are kind of on the edge, a little uncomfortable, this doesn't seem right. Uh, And as the data are coming out, and now we're having communications from the European Medicines Agency that are going to be breaking over the next week that are acknowledging that these products were not effective in preventing infection and spread. And that has a whole range of implications uh, in terms of legal and political and so I think what's happening is that with with these increasingly high-profile meetings that have evolved now over four, uh, starting with Rome and then Paris and then uh, Brussels and now here in Romania... Will it get to America? So uh, <laughs> funny you should ask that uh, because uh, there's active discussion Ooh. and I have a mission when I get back to place some phone calls... Okay. Uh, to see whether there will be openness and enthusiasm for uh, having a fifth ICS in the DC metro area, and in particular bringing in uh, political leaders from all over the world. Uh, you know, it, Washington is, is still the imperial capital, and uh, of the West at least. We'll see how long that lasts, but uh, as the budget explodes, but um, for now it is. It's symbolic, and the hope is that if we can bring these political leaders that aren't necessarily with our version of the narrative, but are um, exploring it, and uh, increasingly aware that it looks like this issue may be pivotal in upcoming elections. Uh, that they might be willing to travel across the pond or uh, from other parts of North America and uh, South America and participate in a conference that starts to look forward towards solutions uh, in addition to summarizing the latest data because the data just keep flooding out. So uh, thanks for asking the question. I'm, I'm intentionally evading it uh, by uh, not giving you dates or telling you the plans that I have been tasked with by the leadership. Uh, but uh, I hope that I'll soon be able to return to the States and have some phone calls with people in, in our media space and our uh our political space and and see whether they have enthusiasm there's a lot going on right now politically Mm -hmm. and not a whole lot of donor money and so uh we can't take on more than we can chew right now and that's going to be the big thing a a conference in dc is not a cheap date Mm -hmm. so uh stay tuned there's also uh talk about uh various Mediterranean locations, including Greece and Spain. Mm. Uh, that I, I, I'm all for that, but uh, I don't know that that's the right, the politically astute move at this moment in time. So hopefully uh, Q1 or early Q2 in DC. Well,
1: thank you, Dr. Oliver Malone. Of course, people can make sure and find out that information on War Room, on your substack and anywhere else.
2: Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.
1: Dr. Ryan Cole is wonderful to to meet you. Obviously, you spoke yesterday at the International Crisis Summit here uh, in the Romanian Parliament. Uh, your work on cancer, and that was what you were speaking on yesterday, the link between the COVID-19 vaccination and cancer. Maybe just let us know how, how you first came across this. What, what were you first noticing, and then the later results or research you're looking at? Sure. Um,
0: it was a signal first when the, the shots rolled out. Uh, I've been doing pathology for 26 years, seen a half million patients diagnostically in my career. So you know patterns under Mm. the microscope, month to month, year to year, Uh, expect this amount of this type of disease or this type of inflammation, et cetera. So one knows patterns. So after the shots rolled out, I started to see under the microscope, biopsies sent from doctors all around the country, an increase in certain viral rashes. I had already seen immune suppression from COVID itself in many patients, and I started seeing these rashes, and I realized we had dysregulation of the immune system that wasn't keeping these viruses in check. Not too soon thereafter, or pretty soon thereafter, I mean, um, I started seeing increases in in certain types of cancer, uh, especially women's health cancer. Melanomas of the skin in younger patients that were very aggressive mm. in their appearance under the microscope. So I noticed this change in pattern, and early interview I overestimated it and I got attacked by the media for that. Whatever, I hadn't gone into the data sets mm. yet, but it was it was at that point it was a fivefold increase in in averages now. This is out of 40,000 patients a year at that point in my career. So it, it, it was an anecdotal observation, but it was a significant uptick over what I had seen for years. And I thought, okay, immune suppression from those rashes, now those immune cells are the cells that keep your cancers in check as well. We always have atypical cells that can go one direction or another, but if you have a healthy, strong immune system, its job is to say, okay, these cells are atypical, kill them off, and we're all fine every day most of the time. And so that was my first signal. And then, after that, as you know, I've traveled the world more than I ever imagined I would. Uh, sharing science, mm-hmm. teaching mechanisms, giving lectures, doctors left and right have approached me. Oh my gosh, I'm seeing cancers in my young patients. I've seen rare cancers I've never seen in my career in statistically significant numbers. Some of the leading oncologists in the world in different countries where I've traveled have cornered me and said, whatever you do, continue bringing this forward. Is it happening to everyone? Obviously not. That's that's the good news. Is it happening at rates that we haven't seen before above expected averages? Absolutely it is. And so now what's happening, there are certain countries, actually the UK, mm. has good data sets. Yeah. Yeah. And in the US, we, we have difficulty getting into our our information the vaccination rates are there the cancer rates are there marrying the two is being hidden in the uk obviously you guys know your national vaccination rates yeah. you, and and you saw in my presentation yesterday the graph of deaths in 15 to 44 year olds now this is an age group where you don't expect a lot of cancers uh, 10 years of data, and I'll give credit to Ed Dowd and his sleuthing team for really digging into the data sets and then and making it uh, viable in terms of understanding to the public. The uptick in 2021 and the astounding uptick in 2022 of deaths from cancer in that age group is just off the charts. And also going into the UK PIP databases, the disability databases, in 2020, And again, looking at several years of data, but you look at 2020, there's about a one point something percent increase in cancer. 2021, obviously you had the first half of the year, then you had the second half with the mandates. There's about a six, seven percent increase in in cancer claims for disability. By 2022, there was 35, 36 percent increase in disability claims for cancer in the UK. That's a signal. So am I saying, gosh, the shots cause cancer, everyone's going to... No, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is we've introduced a genetic injection technology into billions of humans. Any gene product, and these are gene injections, these are, these are gene products. Normal regulatory processes take 5 to 15 years to get those products to market, to tease out signals of what the long-term harms are. So you can get these false mantras of safe and effective, safe and effective. Well, that's a propaganda term because we don't have long-term data yet. One can't make that claim because we normally wait a lot of years to see what's going to develop from this type of technology. We're seeing the signals now. Do we have a lot more research to do, genetic probes, certain things? Certainly. On top of these being genetic technologies, as has come out over the last several months, and I brought up yesterday and several other colleagues did, people think they got an RNA shot. Mm-hmm. Now, J&J, AstraZeneca, slightly different technology, but the persistence within the Pfizer and the Moderna shots, this is a synthetic engineered RNA, highly contaminated with DNA. These went through a very impure production process. They were supposed to remove that. So if you look at all the regulatory documents around the world, they say, oh, it's an RNA product, not expected to have gene toxicity or mutation toxicity, hogwash, because they're loaded with DNA. Now you go into Moderna's own patents. DNA has a risk for oncogenicity, mutagenicity, you look at Comerinity and Pfizer's regulatory documents. Oh, we didn't test these for mutation. We didn't test these for. And That'd they it, black and white. They say right there, um, it's RNA. We don't expect to have any risks because RNA is short lived. It's a little message. Well, DNA is long lived, and DNA, especially in in the lengths of these sequences, there's a high risk to integrate into the human genome. Now, have we proven that yet? in vitro, in the laboratory, yeah, there's some studies that show that already. Uh, Do we have more studies to do? Obviously. Am I highly concerned? Yeah, I am. Am I saying everybody's going to get it? No. Thankfully, if you look at the work out of Denmark, Dr. Schmelling and colleagues, they showed, it looks like about a third of people essentially got a dud, which is great. And they just uh, did a press conference in Sweden today where they confirmed the same patterns in the Swedish data. And... About two-thirds of individuals had mild to moderate reactions, but about four to five percent of individuals had severe reactions. And we know from data around the world there were, quote, hot lots of the vaccine, certain certain batches that had a higher adverse event profile than others. So we're all sleuths, not yeah. getting paid to do any of this. This is private money. This is what government should be spending billions of dollars doing. They have the facilities within universities. They should be doing this,
1: not us. The trends, just the trends you're seeing obviously are not normal and most doctors don't want to speak out I mean how you've obviously suffered professionally I assume from speaking Absolutely. up so what is when you speak to other doctors who are seeing it privately um, there has to there has to be a connection between that private what they're seeing and the public data and how can you extrapolate that out and make sure that information is getting out to the public well and this is where I encourage my colleagues anywhere and everywhere tell the truth Mm.
0: tell the truth if you see something say something I hear that in the airport everywhere I travel (laughs) if you see something say something this is humanity involved in this and I have many colleagues oh please keep speaking out I wish I could do what you're doing and I say you can you can can. silence is compliance And so it doesn't mean, again, it doesn't mean everybody's going to have some adverse event or whatnot. But if people are seeing enough, they need to be saying to their administrators, to their hospital systems, shouldn't we be looking into this? It's like the excess death question, same thing. And they're like, oh, no such thing. You know, these aren't the droids you're looking for. Look that direction, et cetera. But, but that's really the tragedy in all of this. Would I do what I've done in spite of the professional repercussions? You bet, because the truth is the truth. Science is not fixed. Science always evolves. Our goal in all of this is to bring awareness so people can be helped. Too many people have been harmed. That's also been silenced or covered over, and people have been gaslit. If you see something, say something. That's the moral, ethical duty of medical professionals. I know countless nurses, when they were seeing heart problems or increased strokes, especially in younger patients, they would bring it to the administrators and the administrators would shift them out of that part of the hospital. And and so the cover-up is, I think, a bigger, bigger part of the tragedy. But if we're going to make a difference, if we're going to stop this type of insanity happening to humanity,
1: people need to step up and have they need to grow a pair.
3: Yeah,
1: <laughs> well, Dr. Engel, thank you so much for not only speaking at the, the conference yesterday, but for what you're doing, because I think you've highlighted this issue to many. So thank you. My honor, Peter. Thank you so much. And hello to the war room and keep up the fight. Mr. Christian Teresh, it's wonderful uh, to meet you. I've watched many of your speeches in the European Parliament. Uh, I've seen you cut off different times. Um, Maybe before, you've just obviously opened the second day of the International Crisis Summit here in Romania, in the uh, Romanian Parliament. But maybe first you can let us know what it has been like, your first term, as an MEP, Member of the European Parliament for Romania. You were elected 2019. What
3: has that been like? Well... I started with something in mind in 2019 when I decided to uh, to accept an offer to run for for this office. Uh, well, what happened during this term? I would say it totally changed the, the the even my vision of what a public office is and it should be, because like any rookie, you know, any beginner, I started with this hope: man, you go there, you can debate, you will have this. Great arguments, you know, with, with your colleagues, you know, and at the end of the day, if to, if your argument is stronger and better, you know, and more sound, it will win. Well, that did not happen. I just realized that, at least in the European Parliament, that's a that's a fake democratic process because at the end of the day, they, what matters is the close the 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 the, the deals that were done uh, behind the scenes, you know, behind closed doors. And uh, that changed my, my perspective. That was the, the first reaction, was the first uh, impression. The second impression was during the pandemic. I mean, all those people, they swore to protect and defend the fundamental rights of all the EU citizens. And when I realized that they all disregarded the basic fundamental rights, I realized, oh my God, we are in big problem as a union. Then I saw what happened afterwards with... Uh, imposing, pushing, you know, this this kind of uh, restrictive measures on people. And as I mentioned, this is changing the foundation of the European Union. Because if you if you read the treaty, it says the European Union is based on, a, you know, freedom and justice for all and all that, you know, and it's an area of freedom. Well, it's not an area of freedom anymore. So they, they, they converted, they transformed the European Union from an area of freedom to a prison camp, because if you cannot go anywhere unless you show proof of something, they are not free anymore. Right in a jail is the same, right? You're free to get out of a cell, but during these hours, you know, not when you want. So this is actually what actually driven drove me to 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 fight uh, for fundamental rights and for uh, for defending the national sovereignty of all the member states. Because at the end of the day, I realized if I don't do it, uh, maybe other people won't do it the way I see it. So after four years now. In, in office, you know, in a few months from now, we will have European Parliamentary elections again. I will run again for office. Uh, I would say that it was, it was a challenging term, but I don't regret it at all because I learned so much stuff. And uh, on top of that, I had the privilege to fight for so many great causes during this time that that, that kind of reconfirmed that in 2019, when I accepted the offer to run for office, I, I, it was a right decision, I would say, at least for me at that time. Uh, Going forward, my objective is to uh, connect, network with as many elected officials from across the globe as possible, because at the end of the day, we all have to defend our rights, our freedoms and our national sovereignty everywhere in the US, in the UK, in the EU, in Australia. I mean, so many people, you know, got in touch with us. But somehow it's, it's strange, you know, that even this interview that we have right now, you know me because I had I said, you know, obvious things yep. in the part. This is the absurd, <laughs> this is the absurd situation. You, know? yeah. you say reasonable things and that makes you famous. I mean, imagine in what kind of world do we live right now, right?
1: So, Can, can I ask you just as, a obviously, Romania stood up against, you know, what it is like to live under a totalitarian regime um, and you had very low vaccine rates. I've got friends in Bulgaria the same. we were you kind of singled out as a country? Did they want to punish you? How I'm sure they were annoyed that you didn't fall into line.
3: Well, Romania is one of the very few countries in the EU mm. that, at a national level, the the members, the majority members of the Romanian Parliament, where we are in right now, were afraid to actually pass the the digital COVID certificate because we started a, a grassroots campaign mm. at multiple level in the media, on on social media, door to door. Uh, protest and all that and we said the following if you believe that your rights are violated by imposing this, do the following, call obviously all of your elected members in the European Parliament, but, uh, in the Romanian Parliament but that's not enough, call your mayor mm-hmm. and call your council members, all of them and you tell them this, if your party votes for the digital green certificate, digital COVID certificate at the national level, then you, we will kick you out of office, I don't care if you're my father or you're my mother, my sister, my brother we will kick you out of office. So imagine when you get hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of emails. Because, I mean, I have friends in the parliament who told me, man, the servers were blocked because we got so many emails and stuff. So they realized, man, this is a problem. So they just postpone it from one month to another. This is just showing that if you, if we, if we, the people, you know, because I'm people, part of people too, right? If we, the people, understand the power that we have, the power to react against... An abuse and against a, a, a tyrannical measure, this 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 governments you know will back off. Mm-hmm. We are where we are right now in this mess because for many years the majority of people decided to be silent, decided not to be involved, saying, "Well, politics is bad," you know. But no, it's we have to be involved, and if we are involved, things will change. And Romania it's it's a it's a, a living testimony of it. I know at the European. Uh, level, they put a lot of pressures mm-hmm. on the on the Romanian government at that time, but the government went to them and said, "Look, man, if we do this, that we will <laughs> the hell is going to break loose." You know, so we we've done that in 1989 in December. You know, we had a, a violent anti-communist revolution here, so we are kind of used to, <laughs> you know, fighting tyranny. So, uh, as far as that is concerned, we were lucky that. Uh, but not necessarily lucky. You know, it was we we were lucky because after every, all these uh, civic activities that we've done, you know, they, they decided to back off and not to do it. But this is a it's a it's a lesson that could be learned by people from other countries. You know, be involved, be be active, and fight for your rights. And nevertheless, stand your ground. Never ever accept to compromise on basic fundamental rights. This is the usually in, in the in the political world the term that they like. Let's have a compromise. Will compromise on what? On, on, on principles? On fundamental rights? Let's say, look at the the, the the fundamental right to life. How much do you want to compromise on it? Mm. When can I kill you as a government? When can I play with your life? When can I use a society, people in a society as lab rats, to, to test certain medical products on them? So uh, it was a lesson learned, at least for us. I mean, in Romania right now, uh, politically speaking, we, we are uh, standing very, very well because of all these things that we've done and I think other parties and, and political leaders from across the globe could follow our example mm-hmm. that if you defend freedom, if you defend people's rights, if you fight for national sovereignty, uh, you will win at the end.
1: Just a very final thought, uh, obviously you were involved in organizing the conference a couple of months ago in Brussels, yes. the the, sent, the political power in Europe. Now it has come to Romania. It must be a sense of pride for you to have it in your workplace, in your home place. So just just a few words on what it means to have it here
3: in the Romanian parliament. Well, for us, it means a lot. It means that, you know, it's a confirmation that that with everything that we've done over the past uh, years during the pandemic, Romania, it's a world uh, example, I would say, right now. uh, A a leading example, I would say, on how to fight for freedom and for fundamental rights. Because in communism, for example, we were always looking at the West, you know, what the Western standards were, you know, defending freedom and stuff. After the fall of communism and what we see right now happening, we realized that it's like, look, it's like a light. Here's, here's the very interesting thing. In Romania, you know, we are Eastern right Christians here, you know. So on the Eastern night, the priest gives a candle or the light with a candle to someone, and that person gives the light to another person. So in a matter of minutes, thousands of people receive the light on their candles from one priest. But here's something, you give the light to someone, but usually there's, because the, the, the celebration happens at night, it's windy. So maybe your light goes off. What do you do? You take the light from your colleague that you just gave the light to maybe a few minutes before. So this is where we are as a society. We all have to be like lights, you know, in this uh, uh, dark world. And sometimes even when you have tough, tough times, and, and you know, we are here together. We have to uh, support each other. And nevertheless, you know, we have to fight. We have to fight together and, and, and stay united. So I'm very glad that uh, they they decided to come here and have the fourth edition here. Uh, and uh, for, for us as a nation, as a country, you know, we are proud uh, to, to have them here. And uh, we are looking forward to the fifth edition.
1: Mr. Christian Terhish, MEP, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Dr. Stephen Hatfield, it's wonderful to to see you here. I had the pleasure of interviewing you maybe over a year ago. It's been quite a while and you're obviously known to the War Room Posse. Yes. Uh,
4: And a shout out to Steve Bannon and the Posse.
1: Absolutely. It's great to be able to report to War Room and let them know what is happening here with so many speakers. And of course, you're speaking later this afternoon um, on gain of function, bioweapons. Maybe you just want to let the viewers and listeners have a taster. Well, the problem is,
4: bioweapons, you can regulate everything you want, but verification is the problem. Is gain-of-function research going on? The, the Fauci-type stuff mm-hmm. with the humanized mice and the COVID-19. Yeah, um, yeah of course it's going on. Of course, the Chinese have done enough open-source writing, it's clear. Mm. They're doing gain-of-functions. What can you do about it? Nothing. You can't get people into some of these programs. Mm. What you can do, we have 20,000 pharmaceutical compounds that are FDA'd, but they're just for one reason or another haven't been tested for other things Mm. off-label. Drug companies don't want Mm. that there 's twenty six viral families that cause human disease out of some one thousand four hundred and i think seventy six microorganisms that can harm you it 's only a handful okay out of those families. We need to test each of those twenty thousand compounds against representative members of each of those twenty six viral families. Mm-hmm. Now that's a lot of cell culture, but we have facilities that can do things like this. Some of the national labs can be geared up very quickly for this. The other day, a few months ago, they found that a very common diuretic that you take for high blood pressure, a water tablet Mm. called Spironolactone, it blocks Epstein-Barr virus replication. Oh my god, no more, you can treat Burkitt's lymphoma now. Mm kissing disease in high school, mononucleosis, Mm -hmm. yeah, we can give you, we can stop the virus now. In tissue culture, it still needs clinical trials. But who would have thought that? Mm. Who would have thought an anti-malarial? Or a horse dewormer, like ivermectin. So all of these compounds need to be tested against each of those 26 families. It'll take about a year, and and it'll, it'll be rather expensive, but Once the team that's doing it has got it down, the protocols, it'll go very quickly. And I guarantee you, we will increase our antiviral drug armamentarium tremendously. So you take that. And now the concept of early drug treatment for whatever comes along. All right, you cut your finger, you let it go, it gets infected, you let it go. Now it's cellulitis. You let it go, and now they're chopping your arm off for gangrene. Mm. Infections, you always treat as early as possible, and the earlier you treat, the better results you have. The same with viral infections. If we can get into you yep. right at the start, then we've got a good chance of whipping this. And cancer, cancer's the same way. Breast cancer is completely treatable if you mm. catch it early. Mm. So, and then combinations of drugs. Yeah. Having Tamiflu, uh, under Obama, they spent, I think, $1.2 billion on Tamiflu, mm-hmm. a drug that actually doesn't work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow.
4: It reduces your symptoms by half a day. Yeah. But the virus quickly mutated. An RNA virus, you have to have multiple drug therapy. Yeah. Like yeah. any antibiotic, it, it, tuberculosis is like six drugs you have mm-hmm. to give in combination. But you can still kill it. The same with RNA viruses, like COVID. Yep. To use one therapeutic agent, hydroxychloroquine works because it doesn't affect the virus. It affects mm. your own body mm. and changes the acidity of your cells so the virus can't uncoat.
1: Can I, can I ask just yeah. a, a question about the, the balance between um, allowing drug companies tests, because we're told... In of function isn't allowed. There are large pharmaceutical companies oh, with a lot of power. But how do you balance that up between the power the pharmaceutical companies have and they run roughshod over regulations anyway? Um, so there's that balance, obviously, of the, the profit and what their power in we public. Did, we did some research on this a few months ago.
4: And uh, what we found in 1976, we had over 4,000 laboratory-acquired infections. Mm. At sort of what would have been BSL 3 level. Mm-hmm. These are predominantly bacteria like brucellosis yep. or rickettsia like organisms like Q fever. Yep. And um, very little viruses. Well, our number of BSL labs has exploded now mm-hmm. a thousand times. Yep. And we only had something like 11 infections over about a three year period. Yep. Why? because the safety got better. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
4: So these class two biological safety cabinets yep. with the magna-helical gauge, I mean, high-quality mm-hmm. one. And let's wear a full face covering, positive pressure, breathing. Yep. And if you'll take your Raycal suit and tuck it into your Tyvek suit and zip it up, the exhaust from your face mm-hmm. goes down over your throat and your suit puffs out and you're under a slight positive pressure yep. at all yep. times. Mm-hmm. And you're safe. I mean, I, I, would, I would not hesitate.
1: Can I, just find, can I ask you, uh, yeah. you've obviously, you were telling me earlier, you'd been at the first international COVID summit, yeah. international Christ summit, uh, but in Rome, this is the fourth one. Kind of how, What do you see your role in on this topic, speaking to the public? Uh, what is the kind of message you aiming to get out? Education and keeping them up to date with what's happening.
4: Uh, the first COVID summit, we went into Janet Woodcock mm-hmm. and the disruption. I mean, Peter Navarro mm-hmm. saved thousands of people. I'm serious. Yeah. Because he forced hydroxychloroquine through. And uh, we yeah. had, he had surged it out. This is all his own. Mm-hmm. They'd surged it out to Cardinal McKinson and the pharmaceutical suppliers.
1: Yep.
4: Doctors were writing scripts for it and taking it themselves. And you had just started to see a plateau in New York City hmm. when Janet Woodcock and those people did their dirty. Yeah. Yeah. The doctors were not hesitant at all to use it off-label. When a when a pregnant woman can take any drug, or a nursing mother, we don't let them have anything. Yeah. Okay, and it was just a sham. Yeah. Now there needs to be accountability. We need a special prosecutor. I have a paper coming out and. Uh, American Association of Physicians and Surgeons, this coming issue after Thanksgiving. And we're calling for a merger of a special prosecutor's office, special counsel's office, Mm -hmm. with a scientific team. Mm -hmm. Because we all have the names and who did what and when they did it. And let's start calling some people in and asking them questions. The Lancet. Why didn't you peer review these papers? The New England Journal of Medicine. Oh, I'm sorry. Their senior editor is one of Janet Woodcock's outside advisors, and there's a re- she's our, she was on the editorial board of the New England Journal. So we got to stop this revolving door of stuff between big pharma, uh, bonuses and stuff. It's U.S. government money that paid for that research. You don't get a bonus. You don't get stock options. You get the pleasure of helping mankind with your work and your dedication.
1: Yeah.
4: Okay? Yeah. okay, this isn't to make money. Yeah. You don't go into this business to. You shouldn't go into this
1: business to make money. But that's a, a perfect. Thank you so much, Doctor Stephen Harper, for what you do, and it's great to have you with us. It's, it's my pleasure, and hi to the to the War Room, the Policy. policy. <laughs> Jason christoph uh, it's wonderful to meet you. Yesterday you were obviously speaking at the first day of the International Crisis Summit uh, on me- uh, on media over medicine, and that's psychological warfare. But maybe to the viewers, to the war room viewers and others, maybe I hadn't come across you before, it was my first time, and this is the joy of these conferences. Uh, your background, uh, what you teach on the psychological warfare. Do you want me to touch on that and then mention some of the things you spoke about yesterday?
5: Well, basically what I used to be is a health coach and I was a high-end health coach. And people used to pay me a lot of money and they had a real hard time accomplishing their goals. And to make a long short uh, story short, I started to use psychological manipulation tactics and mind control tactics on my health clients and it was the only thing that worked. And it worked so well... I lost them all. They kept doing everything they needed to do without me, you know, putting the whip to them. So what I started doing is coaching people online in the same way. And then there was such a big demand that I opened sort of a psychological reprogramming institute. I do have doctors in the program, chiropractors, health coaches, and regular members of the public, because you can use the same psychological manipulation on yourself yeah. to change your own behavior. So it's a, it's a wide application now. So I, I run this uh, international school, and uh, and I take client, uh, take students about four times a year. Okay. Well.
1: Obviously, many of us were caught unaware of what was happening. Uh, later on, we've realized the power of fear and how the media used different manipulation tactics. Uh, you maybe saw some trends early on. Maybe you want to mention kind of what you saw early on being used to coerce the public.
5: Well, the 85% of mind control is fear and repetition. Repetition is key. So when I started watching the media, and they were using the repetitive phrases because there's a part of our brain that actually tabulates repetition in an attempt to be safe. And it's it's an invisible part of the mind and The reason it tabulates repetition is it assumes that the most repetitive stimuli in your environment represents what the bigger herd is saying, thinking, or doing. And this part of the brain will also force you to act that out in an attempt to bond with the bigger group because it's always safer in the bigger group. So as soon as you start seeing this repetition that makes no sense, you know that repetition that's illogical and rational is trying to hack this very loving part of the brain this Mm -hmm. this part of the brain does have this function because it loves us and you can see some hacking now this sort of copying or mimicking the repetitive content if the subject is in fear you get a greater mimicking a greater mirroring so i saw the fear ramp up i saw the repetition ramp up everything that was Getting driven into the collective was illogical and irrational, nothing was going to benefit the public and that 's when you know you 're walking into the the realm of mind control
1: so yesterday, when you spoke here to the audience, uh, was it really what did you want to leave with them? Was it alerting them? what was happening? giving them little pieces they can understand? What, what did you want to leave with the audience?
5: I wanted them just to know it 's a real thing, and that mind control is not about finding a person with glazed over eyes that looks like a zombie. Because this is what the most people imagine. They imagine, oh, if someone was under mind control, I could notice it. If I was under mind control, most people think they're too intelligent to be put under mind control. So I wanted them to know it's a real thing. There's many different modalities. And if you stack them on top of each other, you can really get the collective going in one one direction or the other. I just wanted to get get sort of the words and the ideas into their psyche so that they could have something to discuss amongst themselves. And I think now if you look out in the, into the alternative media, this is becoming a bigger topic. Mind control is used a lot, uh, propaganda, behavior modification. So. And in order, the reason this is important is because in order for people to protect themselves from upcoming attacks, you have to know what it looks like, you have to know that it's real, and there are ways to protect yourself from it, for sure. Well, certainly what we've
1: seen, sorry, last question, what we've seen
5: over the last four years.
1: Um, you realize the the power. Some people have woken up, many have. Uh, maybe some people are quite embarrassed about how they've been chipped in. When you talk to people, uh, people don't like to admit that we're wrong, right. or get sucked in. Yeah. Uh, no one wants to be gullible in a way. Right. So how do you talk kind of to, to that group to make sure they um, kind of accept what happens so that they don't get
5: sucked in again? Well, I think it goes a long way in in psychology, it's been shown that for a person to mature from child to adult, you have to have the situations that you just described. So this pain, this embarrassment, the self-reflection, it's actually, a lot of people will look at it as a goblin, but it's actually a guardian. This sort of deep self-reflection that a lot of people are going through right now, they have the buyer's remorse mm-hmm. after the t- potentially taking many vaccinations, that painful re- realization, realization that they weren't really alert to a very obvious attack, this will help them. This is a gift. This is something that will get them prepared for the next time such an agenda rolls out. And we see this all around the world, that people are digging in psychologically and getting ready for the next attempt to manipulate their behavior.
1: Jason Christoph, thank you so much for your time today.
5: You're very welcome. Pleasure.
1: Dr. Sorin Moncaciu, uh, MEP here in this phenomenal building, the Romanian Parliament, and of course a doctor. Uh, this event, you've been instrumental in, in putting it together, but maybe I could ask you first about your time as an MP and mm-hmm. as a doctor. Um, what was that like and has that like, been speaking here in the Romanian Parliament?
6: Well, here in this building, we carry out the biggest fight of our first legislation in the parliament and that was the green certificated work place. In other words they want to vaccinate the active population from 18 to 65 and we oppose that but we have only 10% of the votes mm. so it was an ordeal to block the law and to But we have allies We bought the the people at the gates to show them the fact that they don't want that particular uh, uh, measure, which was, like I said, was actually mandatory, because if you cannot feed your family, you cannot work, then what you're going to do, right? Well, and that's differentiate us from the rest of the... Uh, Western Hemisphere, because in the vast majority of of countries, they impose uh, this. Well, some I remember the federal workers in Washington. I mean, in in United States, mm-hmm. they they fought it. Uh, the ones who didn't wanna <clears throat> vaccinate themselves, they uh, they got kicked out, and then they sue, and and they were uh, reinstated. But the truth of the matter is that a lot of people in active uh, from 18, like I said, from Mm -hmm. 18 to 65, they were forced, they were coerced in getting vaccinated. So this is our biggest fight. And uh, we succeed to do that. And uh, they thought they they are going to give us like a break Mm -hmm. and then they are going to come back in the next session of the legislature but in the meantime the omicron actually saved the day because omicron was um, such a benign kind of uh, uh, infection and uh, was not really threatening anything and once you have it you you, you can prove you went through the disease and um, and they realized that actually the pandemic is over big but that's the natural um, way for pandemics, the, the the more a virus goes through different mm. uh, hosts, yeah. become more less uh, aggressive, yeah. and um, and that was the story of the Romanian. And what is the consequence of that? Well, now we look into the stats of the Eurostats, and we see Romania is a country who has negative excess mortality. While all the countries in Western Europe they have positive excess mortality. And some of them, like Great Britain, uh, Italy, mm-hmm. uh, they have high percentage. And if you look to the statistics, you see that actually it instead of natural move towards the older the ages Mm. now is moving to the left to the younger age in other words there are younger people dying and those who get injured or died they were um, young people vaccinated with two or three doses another thing we did here was uh, we have a conference like like this one only it was only romanian participation only romanian physician who a handful of them who uh, fought against the measures and against the mandatory vaccination and um, <clears throat> this um, conference i designed it first the the doctors to to show their viewpoint and the scientific data and everything as they can because data actually was not even to this one. Mm -hmm. They did not contradict, they did not uh, dispute the data because data is science. If you do a research and you can reproduce it, you give it to the peer review, right? Mm -hmm. And people can verify what you have, what what your uh, findings were. So they verified that and they were aware of the fact that it's impossible for them to uh, dispute that. And as a matter of fact, from the big pharma, um, WHO, I don't know, European Union uh, health branch, nobody disputed what these scientists were finding. Same in, same in the Romanian Parliament, they, they were not disputing our findings and our, the science. Mm. <clears throat> okay. But the second part of the conference, not like this one, I brought the patients in the house, wow. people who got injured, people who uh, have their uh, lives mm. um, damaged, damaged. So, and people who were relative to people who died. So for them, it was shocking to find out that there are people that are ready to testify to the contrary of the propaganda. And this is what I, I think it's a powerful tool for them to, to come down to this earth and find out that, no, there is people dying. It was people who got injured. and. Uh, and that's why, and uh, uh, think about, it, it's 1,260 adverse reactions. Mm. I mean, it, it's, it, it's a full book of
1: medicine. And we have exactly the same issue in the UK, 12% uh, excess death, vaccine harms. Can I? It, it's interesting, this event, because in the UK mm-hmm. Parliament, uh, we have an event coming up and it will be a small event compared to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what was the difficulty with you putting on an event. I'm sure there was opposition. It's wonderful that it is in Romania. It's gone from Brussels to Romania. But what was the
6: difficulty for you internally organising such an event? We have absolutely no... no, uh, Because the rule in this parliament is we have 10%. We have the rights to have the rooms. We have the rights to have visitors. We have the rights to have a uh, conference. Of course they didn't want it. Of course they didn't like it. But... They respect our, and there is another reason and I tell you the underlying reason is the political situation now. We are probably closing down on the first, on the Mm socialists, and they are afraid that if we are going to get in power, then they will see a completely reverse. That's one thing. But I tell you about the British Parliament. They really helped me a lot, and I tell you why. When Mr. Barnier, who was the Commissioner for Internal Affairs, he <coughs> had the delegation of, of British uh, parliamentarians in his office or somewhere in, in, in Brussels, and they were asking him, and I was following them, what is the basis, the scientific basis for mandatory vaccination at this, at this uh um, 18 to 65, the active population. Well, well, why is the, the base, the scientific base for that? And uh, he has no answer. Not only that he has no answer, he was honest and says, well, it's a political uh, decision. You have to take this political decision. So Mr. Barnier came here <laughs> and, uh, and I had a very flare-up discussion <laughs> with him. And the conclusion was the other MPs were looking at and say, what is this guy saying that we are going to vaccinate people without any scientific base or any proof or any kind? That's one thing. And the second thing was, um, if I don't have a reason, I'm not going to mandate I mean, it, this is—I mean—it's coercion, you know. You, I, I'm not going to say you can go to the university, you can work, you can do if you are not vaccinated. You don't have the right to do that, especially if you don't have any scientific basis for that. And uh, he didn't like it. He—he <laughs> he just free. But uh, that's the—that's that, the way I—I I played because. But I learned, again, I learned it from the British uh, members of the Parliament. Mm.
1: Dr Soren Makachi, thank you so much for your time, MP here in this building, and thank you for your efforts in putting this event on.
6: <clears throat> I'm glad you do it the same thing, because we need to spread the word. This vaccine and the virus, it has um, a very... They, there are very many reasons we believe that it was on purpose. In other words, it was something that was <clears throat> designed like that. The virus was a uh, uh, gain-to-function. And that strategy... It, I was in the United States when Obama... Mm. Obama uh, uh, administration banned it in on the continental USA. They could not do the gain-of-function research. So that's why they moved to China. But... Uh, so the virus was aggressive, number one. I mean, this uh, Delta variant. But the, the, all the, the, the group of viruses are so, they mutate so much. The, i give you an example. Right now there is 1,200 viruses and the CDC, American CDC, they list it only 20 because they move that much. So that's one thing. And another thing... Is um, and another thing is <clears throat> the fact that if the, we have alternative treatment, they fought against it. Mm. Not the, they 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 boycott everything. Remember the, the one I was telling you about the uh, the 21st of uh, December. Mm when they have the trusted news initiative. Yeah. What was that? Was a was a cartel of media, uh, social media, everybody, who decided that only vaccination is the one they are going to push. And for the other one, in other words, for the alternative medicine, alternative treatments, and for the um, adverse reactions, they are going to suppress the, that information. Why? Because, well, the argument was kind of silly, if you ask me. Uh, they don't want to have people with uh, uh, high percentages of hesitancy. Well, this is what, what happened. We have around 30% people vaccinated and we have negative um, excess mortality. While I was looking last year, it was uh, no, no, I think it was in, in the summer, somewhere in July or over when Great Britain had 26% excess mortality. This is way out of mm. but, yeah. but that's the result of the policy. I mean, if you have a policy like that, um, and <clears throat> I'm very surprised to tell you the truth because. We believe we are looking up to the Western democracies saying that they have a system and the system has checks and balances. But then, guess what? We found out that actually it's not the case. So. Well, thank you for your time. Wonderful event. And thank you for
1: your efforts in putting it on. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here with. Nick Hudson, someone who I followed, uh, your work with Panda, uh, Pandemics, Data Analytics, and an organisation that sprung up over the last three years, three and a half yeah, years, a half four years, years
7: ago, almost four years ago, yes. Um,
1: Would you want me to touch on that and then we'll get on to your speech today? For sure,
7: yeah. Sure. Uh, we set up in South Africa originally simply asking the question, why are we not performing a cost-benefit lo- cost analysis before going into lockdown? Mm. You know, <laughs> a very innocuous question. Yep. But one that, that caused people to go completely bananas. They, they, yeah, and that surprised me. Um, and what happened was we attracted enough attention so everybody who had some reservations about what was going on in the COVID phenomenon sort of was drawn into our nascent organization. Mm-hmm. By October of that year, we'd realized that nothing that was being done in the country was being done at the behest of any arm yeah. um, of our government. It was all being internationally controlled. And so we internationalized Panda. And it's gradually you know, gone from strength to strength. We've published an enormous amount of material, done a lot of research. Um, and basically, look, the first level insight is simply that there was never a pathogen to be afraid of. Um, this, yep. The threat was greatly exaggerated. Yep. None of the measures worked, and they were all inconsistent with original guidelines, yep. the, whether we're talking about lockdowns or any of the crazy masking and yep. barriers and plastic everywhere. Um, and... Of course, these vaccines were a fraud. The mechanism of action is implausible. The studies were fraudulent, and um, they, they've done nothing but cause net harm. Mm-hmm. So this completely false narrative that they've saved millions of lives is, lives is a complete lie. Those are sort of the level one insights, if you like. And at this stage, they're frankly boring. Mm-hmm. The bigger picture, the level two insights really are in the domain of ethics yep. that it was always wrong to lock down yep. and it was always wrong to mandate medical treatments of any kind including yep. vaccines then there's a level 3 insight and that's what I'm going to be talking about today
1: Okay, well, will tell you, are obviously one of the the main speakers here yep. at the international crisis summit, uh, mm. was COVID, now crisis right. number 4 here in Romania but you're talking about the danger of centralization of power and of course we had a a global problem and with a global solution. Mm. Uh, you have a different view, so maybe give us a little bit of what you're going to let the audience know this afternoon yeah. in your speech.
7: Yeah, well, I've become known for a, a little heuristic called Hudson's Eraser, which goes uh, like this. It goes, you know, any problem that is, one, presented as a global problem, two, admitting only global solutions, mm-hmm. and three, in an environment of suppression of dissent, yeah. is definitively a scam. Mm -hmm. So COVID ticks the boxes for that, climate change ticks the boxes for that, and a whole host of other perceived global crises are scams. Um, That is really a subset of the problem of centralization. Centralization doesn't work for, for reasons that are really rooted in the fabric of reality. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And the reason I can say something like that is that in, in any complex domain, so whether we're talking about immune systems or society or an economy or a climate or you know, an, an epidemic, any kind of complex system is not amenable to dry analysis, to, to the world of deduction and algorithm The only way that humans have of of making progress under conditions of complexity, of solving problems under conditions of complexity, is the system of conjecture and criticism, or trial and error. It's an evolutionary approach to trying to enhance human flourishing. And the thing that centralization does is it is manifest in top-down solutions to problems, and those problems, for the, for the reasons I've just outlined, the solutions, for the reasons I've just outlined, mm. cannot possibly work. What results is that the means of error correction is destroyed. And we see that so clearly. Mm. How were the means of error correction destroyed during COVID? Mainly through the use of censorship. Anybody who had any valid or invalid objection to the um, measures or the, 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 or the problem statement even, was shouted down or cancelled or censored or deplatformed. And so you, you, when you paralyze the, the means of error correction, what you're actually doing is shutting down the only way in which knowledge grows, conjecture and criticism. Mm-hmm. And so this talk is going to be exploring that issue in a little more depth, trying to make it clear to people how many places in our world we can see this going on, yeah. and also highlighting the really tragic sets of circumstances which I think we can logically expect to see come to pass if this centralization continues to be adopted mm. in the way that it is.
1: Of course, the global solution was stay at home. Uh, I touched a little bit before, uh, there are many aspects of mm. the COVID tyranny um, and vaccine harm, certainly one huge one. Mm. But lockdowns, it seems to have just been accepted that was part of it. Um, but there doesn't seem to be any delving punishing those who did it and no. realising how destructive it was. That's right. And
7: that's kind of part and parcel of the, the, the suppression of dissent is that you never acknowledge that anything you did was wrong and you rather set up... What, what happens is basically scientific institutions become co-opted by people who are trying to project a narrative. Yep. And so they stop doing science altogether mm-hmm. and they start um, faking Uh, And the last talk we heard was just about the way in which, you know, very basic mathematics and statistics was um, manipulated um, and in in some cases even falsified Mm -hmm. in order to support the narrative that was being projected. And so the scientific institutions then become servants to uh, the narratives that are being projected by the wealthy and powerful instead of uh, servants to the truth. And that's happened, I think, across the board. I I think we are actually beyond the the point in most of our uh, educational institutions and our institutions of public health and many others, we're beyond the point of return. Mm. You can't actually reform those organizations. What's required is parallel organizations um, that that should uh, compete and pull the brightest minds and and the best leaders. Uh, I think that's what we're going to see in coming years because those organizations
1: are finished. Just me end on that point, because the parallel organisations, we've seen uh, parallel media Mm organisations, the alternative media, parallel health organisations, and that seems to be happening. Uh, Is is it possible? I mean, you look at politics, all different areas. Mm -hmm. um, Do you see that actually happening and producing a, a positive result?
7: Yes, I do. I, I think there's going to be an incredible amount of destruction along the way because you, you, what, what's important to realize is that highly centralized, artificial, ed- monolithic organizations mm-hmm. inevitably become criminal. Yeah. And the reason for that is that they, they, because of their centralization and because of their top-down structures, they, they become unable to innovate mm-hmm. and to create new knowledge. Um, and the only way in which they can increase the, the power that they project, the, the, the resources that they command... Is by acting as a monopolies act by lobbying governments, and uh, you know getting the governments to punish the competition or to or to create unfair, fa- unfairly favourable yeah. business conditions for the large corporations. So they become criminal, and that's why we had antitrust legislation. I mean, we still have it, but it's just being ignored. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so any large centralised organisation inevitably becomes criminal. And that's as true for large corporations as it is for large governments, as it is for the alphabet soup of these international, um, you know, WEF, uh, United Nations, mm-hmm. or, you name it, any one of those organizations is well beyond the point yeah. where they've become criminal. They are now syndicates. Mm-hmm. And when what we've seen in recent years with the help of the World Economic Forum, those criminal large corporations are in bed with Mm -hmm. those criminal large governments and that's called fascism that is what fascism actually is notwithstanding what the crazy guys dressed in black on the street seem to think that is what fascism is and we've got that now we are living under a fascist system where the interest of of the powerful is being um protected and at the expense Of the vast majority of people on the planet, but in particular the middle classes, which have just been unbelievably gutted. Four trillion dollars has been transferred away from the middle classes to into the hands of the wealthy and powerful over just three years. It's theft on a scale that is
1: unprecedented. I don't want to keep you away from your speech, Uh, Nick Hudson, Panda. Thank you so much for your time. It's an absolute pleasure. Anytime, thank you.
2: If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list donate, share, and subscribe
0: to our many platforms at heartsovoke.org. Thank you for listening.